This is Alex. I'm from Boston. Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chefs. Hello all and welcome back to the Premier Chelts. We are joined this week by Ben. Ben, welcome back. It's been a minute, but good to have you back on. Good to be back. Looking forward to the final few games before the break. And of course, from Chelsea's point of view, they don't need to stress about the Champions League qualification anymore. That's exactly a good way to open. It's giving me positive vibes. Rahul, how are you doing? I'll turn it over to you to ask some questions here as well. Uh, I'm doing good. And Ben, yes, that was a good reminder that a few weeks ago we were talking about do we make it? Do we not make it? And here we are home and dry. Uh, maybe not as, as as comfortable as we'd like, but it never is as Chelsea fans. Uh, but let's get started, Ben. We want to talk about some of the latest recruitments that have come in. Uh, the last few times we've spoken, we've spoken about uh, technical director, sporting director. Uh, so let's start with Joe Shields, who came in from Southampton as, and is now the co-director of recruitment and talent. Uh, what can you share with us? When was the initial contact with him with Southampton? Uh, and what does Chelsea, Igbali, Boli see uh, him doing in this new uh, position? Well, I think all of these hires to start a little bit more generally are part of a think tank as the model is almost built from the ground up and it will be underpinned by youth and making sure that there's a team in place, because we obviously know that Todd Bowley is a very big fan of the Red Bull model. So Chelsea want to buy young, and they want to make sure that they're in the conversation for not only top talents, but get a series of talents that they can give pathways to once this multi-club model is built, and even beyond that as well, through stronger relationships with clubs even that are not officially part of the model and Chelsea have had some of that before, such as the partnership with Vitesse. And we know that Broya, for example, was one of the players that went on loan there, but generally Chelsea wants structure and they want to back youth because they see value in that. And also it's a lot easier in many ways to find a series of promising talents all around the same level and then back your system to develop them to realize their potential and become elite level players as opposed to having to constantly wait for the elite player to fully develop and then you're in a Jude Bellingham style race every single time and not only does it cost money but even if you have money you've got to be able to win the race it's a lot easier to win a race from inside your own group off a series if you like of players of which some of them will become elite level players and others you can sell on and commercialize and make money from and then invest that when you do need to put an offer down for somebody like a Jude Bellingham. So there's a clear strategy in place. And it's interesting that with all of these hires, there is a common ground in some senses on their CVs. They've either worked within a group or specifically been involved within the Red Bull group or the City group. And in some cases, it's both. And therefore, what Chelsea are doing is they're making sure, because at top senior level, they're obviously still learning and coordinating and hiring. They're making sure that as far as youth are concerned, pathways are concerned, window planning is concerned, data is concerned, they're getting their foundations in place with real experts. So all of these hires are very exciting. Specifically on Joe Shields, it was a relatively long-standing conversation that took place 
over a series of weeks, really. But I think it's important to stress that despite the fact that the contact came a little bit earlier, because obviously Chelsea were inquiring about a number of players and with all of these candidates, there was some crossover, therefore, where Todd Bowley was able to kind of do business on the football side and at the same time explore possibilities with anyone that he met, really. It's not just the case with Joe Shields, it's also the case with Vivelle, and in particular, actually, Freund, even though he didn't end up joining. And we know that in conversations with Paul Barber, it led to Kukurea, and then via Kukurea, it led to Graham Potter. So this is all kind of normal. You tend to kill two birds with one stone, particularly when you're learning, because in having a negotiation or a conversation or an inquiry, or even just a beer, ultimately, with people over business, you realise you might want to work with them and bring them over to your team. And I don't think there's anything untoward about that. And it was a little bit the case with Joe Shields. And then from there, it was up to Joe Shields to make up his mind. And that took a little bit longer. So right up really until game week four of the Champions League, Joe Shields still hadn't fully made up his mind. And the reason for that is because he only just joined Southampton and he's actually got quite a limited amount of senior recruitment experience, which is not to his detriment. It's simply the fact that his main experience is in academy and youth. And he took the Southampton job, leaving the city group to ultimately have a step up. And he was only at Southampton for four months and he did a lot of good. He obviously went where he knew back to the Manchester City Academy to bring in one or two players his kind of standout spot is Sancho. And then Lavia is kind of up for debate because most in the industry believe that that was very much about Joe Shields stamping his mark. Whereas Ralph Hasenhutl obviously said that he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And I think that what's interesting is Chelsea role is co-director of recruitment and talent. And that is a slightly changed title based on the back and forth. Because as I said before, match week four, the Champions League, Joe Shields went to Glasgow to watch Rangers against Liverpool on behalf of Southampton. And at that point, he was talking to a variety of people still trying to determine what he should do because he's had a rough 24 hours. The news had leaked that he was set to join Chelsea. But he genuinely at that point hadn't fully made his mind up because there's this nagging doubt at the back of his mind as to whether Chelsea is a step up too soon in his career. And also, what's the structure like? Who else is joining? Who's going to support him? Whereas at Southampton, he was kind of learning senior recruitment with a lot more individual responsibility. And I think that the irony of his short tenure at Southampton is that he really focused more still on youth. So everyone looks at Southampton's position now and his relationship with Ralph Hasenhutl and they say, well, did they get on? How well did he do? But he was really forward planning. He was bringing in young players that could well have a benefit to Southampton over the course of the next three to five seasons, whereas Southampton are looking at it as now and part of his accountability and responsibility was also around senior recruitment. And now he's at Chelsea and he's also in some senior recruitment, but it is interesting that they have added the word talent to his title, which kind of tells you that I think he's back in his wheelhouse. He's a co-director, so obviously accountability is shared. And then at the same time, you have the talent aspect where he'll work, I think, with the technical director 
and that will to some extent be Lawrence Stewart, but he's kind of going to be the global technical director. But when Vivelle likely comes in, it's very plausible that you'll have Shields and Vivelle with a kind of close relationship around Chelsea and youth as well. So he's going to have a challenge because he's jumping into a new club, new owners, new model, new dynamic. But I think the appeal of the role is quite clearly in Chelsea's ambition, but also the fact that he'll be able to turn back to his main area of expertise, which is scouting and youth, yet apply it to senior recruitment without the kind of pressure or island-like nature that he found at Southampton, because that's quite a tough transition to leave the City group and then to be at Southampton where there was a lot on his shoulders, whereas now it's more of a shared responsibility. So all of that suggests that this is going to be a very smart appointment for Chelsea. I think the only caveat that I would mention is just keep an eye out for the use of agents, because what you will find is that at Southampton, there was a big influx of agents after his arrival, and that will translate to high fees. And that's been a problem for Manchester City as well, even though they don't necessarily care as much as a club like Southampton. Whereas I think that Chelsea's owners looking at sustainability are going to want to cut back on that. And Shields and Todd Bowley as well, because he's obviously meeting people and having to rely on agents until he builds his network, until he goes direct to sources, until he works out who's viable to buy and at what cost they come. So everyone at Chelsea is in this learning, but they're also having to kind of lean on people. And there's always a danger that an agent can take advantage of that. And at Southampton, there was a lot of young business which hopefully will translate to smart business in the future. But my understanding, talking to sources, is there was a big influx of agents and fees as well, which is not a good look for the books. So Chelsea just need to make sure that that doesn't bleed into their business. And that's not, again, a criticism of Shields, but he was using agents, Bowley's using agents. And when Chelsea build their new model, I don't expect it to be as agent heavy and fee heavy as we're seeing at Manchester City and as seemingly Southampton have found in that short period when Shields has joined. But, you know, overall, it's an exciting appointment. Ben, you spent, mentioned some names, Christian, Vivel, Lawrence Stewart. I'll pass it to Rahul in a minute to talk about them. But coming back to Joe Shields and what Chelsea Club are trying to do with this kind of appointment, we spend almost 300 million this summer trying to get big name talents. And it sounds like there are two pathways Chelsea could go down one is with recruiting the younger players looking to get players in at an affordable cost does that signal that they may change for the long term and gone are the days where Chelsea is splashing 100 million or you're going to see like salons happen and then you could be using that money as investments as to what you alluded to yeah they're building the model and ultimately they're trying to have a sustainable football club but at the back of their mind they're still looking at the sale price and they believe that it was at such value that if they develop a model, the actual return from a clear late capital point of view, if you like, is bound to be very beneficial. And they may have to spend first and then get the financial success and sustainability a little bit later down the line. But to maintain the success of the Roman Abramovich era, that was always very likely as well. Of course, if you add the success that they need at Chelsea with the buying of other clubs, with the renovation of the stadium, then they're going to have a lot of bills to pay early and how they're going to offset that. And one of the ways that they can do that is have smart recruitment for two reasons. 
first and foremost, however big you pay for a young player, even with, say, Endrick, who everyone's chasing after, including Chelsea, the release clause for 2024 is still only 60 million euros. And I say only, but bear in mind, he's 16 years of age. So that's farcical and astronomical, and it shows you his potential. But even at that absolute extreme, it's 60 million. It's not 150 million. It's not an Mbappe-style 250 million. And with Chukwameka, for example, 20 million, 50 million plus five was also a massive amount of money to pay. And that's gone noted in the industry as well. But if you get a decade out of him, then first of all, you know that it becomes value for money because over those 10 years, it's 2 million a year. And hopefully you've got a long-term contract as the player develops, which means that you're also not bringing them in on sky-high wages either. And then, of course, if they get, if we flash way forwards to, let's say, 28, 29, 30, and then at that point, Chelsea think they're good, but they're no longer Chelsea good, or the player doesn't want to be a squad player anymore. So now we're moving into potentially that bracket of an N'Golo Kante, not that he can be compared to Chukwameka, but my point is age and role in the squad and minutes and injury prone. So what are Chelsea doing? They're saying we'd love to keep Kante on the right terms with the right extension, but if we can't, then we're quite prepared to sell. And then at that point, you say to yourself, in the case of Chukwameka, rather than with Kante, let it run and lose on a free we're also going to be in a position where we might sell that player. And guess what? With market valuation in football constantly spiking and inflating, the 15 plus five that you paid for Chukwameka in 10 years time, and I'm not really specifically talking about Chukwameka, I'm being generic now with every player, even that 20 million that is seen as slightly above market value, at worst, you're going to get it back and break even and have a zero on your books. And at best, you're going to get 30, 40, 50 million or more. And right. therefore you constantly have a sustainable system and you keep all of the talent in-house. And I think that that's what they want to make sure that they've got the best culture, the best facilities, the best coaches, the best recruitment team, and they're bringing in more talent young. But to do that, you've got to have pathways. And then how do you then develop the talent if you don't choose to do that within Chelsea and you won't for most, you send them out on loan And then in doing so, you can control the game time to some extent, but you can definitely control the coaching. And this is what they're thinking about. And then in doing that, you may have to buy less because everybody that you invest in in the football club is rewarded with long-term contracts. So you also have their loyalty. And then when you have more established players, as we're seeing with Reese James and soon to be, no doubt, Mason Mount as well, they get five to seven year contracts. So they stay at the football club and therefore you need less and less and less. So this last window, very exciting from Chelsea's point of view, if you're a fan anyway, but also very chaotic because there was a need to buy. It wasn't just an ambition to spend. There was a need to buy because of the outgoings and because of areas that Thomas Tuchel and then Graham Potter wanted to strengthen but if you strengthen it with that spend and then they back that up with midfield strengthening maybe another defender and maybe another attacker then you start to have a lull because Chelsea should have trust in what they've got and success and then of course over time does Broyer step up and become more of an automatic starter does Conor Gallagher develop 
and what happens to Chukwameka? And then you've already brought in Wesley Fofana. And then if we jump a bit further ahead, there's a goalkeeper like Gaga Slonina. So before you know it, they're forward planning. And then your technical director is forward planning two windows ahead to get that bit of quality that can just walk straight into the team. So Nkunku is a good example of that. And suddenly the windows take care of themselves. And the irony of all of this is that the strategy then becomes much more like Liverpool do, who don't tend to have insane windows and they put a lot of their finances behind a singular or a couple of box office players with Darwin Nunez being a good example in the last window. And they beat off their competition and they work discreetly and secretly. And I think this is the sort of fun thing about what Chelsea are doing. Like it's so simplified and it's so not what they're doing, but just so fans understand. They want the success of Man City with the network of Man City, but they actually then want the investment in youth and data of Red Bull but it's a different model to Red Bull because Red Bull don't have a Chelsea at the end of it. So they still have to be Chelsea centric. And as a consequence, they have to be very segmented in who's working globally for the group and who's still completely focused and only thinking about Chelsea. And everybody kind of connects those two. But actually what Bowley wants is the end game that Liverpool have got, which is a transfer style committee, a think tank and a decision by numbers that is very collaborative and that means in all these hires that the dynamic is as important as the hires and more important than the titles so whether someone's a technical director globally or for Chelsea whether someone's a director of football or a sporting director or a CEO of football or a co-director of recruitment and talent it doesn't matter what matters is that there is a forum with structure and then from a playing point of view there are pathways and incentivization in terms of the contracts being offered so young players that come to Chelsea in particular believe that they're being invested in and they want to develop and stay even if somebody else comes calling and this is the strategy and the key part in all of it that I think people don't get and it sounds so simple but the only way any of that succeeds you can have the best people the best data loads of money buy all the clubs under the sun But the only way it actually succeeds is if there's one, a connection between ownership and football department, which is why it's so vital in many ways, even if it feels rocky in the short term, that Todd Bowley has had this first-hand experience because it gives him a perspective that no other owner I can think of has ever really had. And then number two, there has to be a forum for disagreement. So everyone talks about what Bowley's cooking And there's always a danger that there's too many cooks. But the key to it all, the glue, is actually that the cooks, if you like to continue the metaphor that are hired, feel like they can argue professionally, they can disagree. And if you don't have that, if you don't have the freedom to debate and to disagree, if you have too much ego, too much politics, too much power, and really Marina and Buck, in the old regime, as good as Chelsea were in terms of their success on the field, were rarely, if ever, challenged. So that's key, that culture, particularly within the recruitment team. And it's going to be difficult because ultimately you've got your manager, you've got Kyle McCauley, you could have two technical directors, even if not by title, by nature, one for Chelsea, one for the group. You've got a co-director of recruitment and talent. By the nature of that title, one presumes there will be another co-director of recruitment and talent. 
that could come internally, then you've got everyone already connected with the academy. You've got all of your networks of scouts. You've got a brand new data philosophy and system. You will have ultimately a sporting director type figure. You might above them have a CEO of football who effectively is a sporting director that is the boss of the sporting director. So that's confusing anyway. And then it remains to be seen whether that role is Todd Bowley's role or whether a Michael Edwards style person comes in. But then if another person comes in in that role, then both Todd Bowley and Bedag Bali will still continue to be involved, even if they don't carry a title, right at the top of the pyramid, strategically of recruitment. And they'll probably bring in two or three more. So already as the model grows and the club and its brand gets bigger, they'll need more and more and more. And then how do you ensure that there is a clear structure and there is a clear way in which decisions can be come to without acrimony and disagreement? And that's what Liverpool have been great at. And it's no coincidence that before he even bought the club, Todd Bowley spoke to FSG to try and get a sense. It's no coincidence that their first target was Michael Edwards because he's been involved with this dynamic. He's worked out a system internally as to how information can feed up, be healthily debated, and then a uniform decision, even if you were the one that disagreed with it, can be made. Liverpool are masterminds at that. And Chelsea ultimately are looking to replicate that type of dynamic, but with a multi-club model and with an emphasis on youth and data, which Liverpool do as well, but they just don't have the same multi-club model at this point. So it's challenging. It's intriguing. It's going to time is very ambitious it may not work to begin with there might be people that come into Chelsea and leave and tell a tale like Thomas Tuchel and say amazing ambition but it just wasn't right for me and there'll be others that just want a piece of it right now from the beginning up because they can see exactly what Chelsea are trying to build so I think that there's no easy answer to your question certainly not from the outside in but Mm. every single person in the industry that i've spoken to whether they are connected to chelsea whether they're part of other clubs whether they're incoming employees whether they're existing employees or whether they're rival clubs are all saying the same thing that chelsea mean business yeah i mean it's fascinating and i think to change a culture in such a level it's going to take time and so we're on the journey we're listening to you we're learning from you it's very, very interesting. But Rahul, I'll pass it over to you to talk about a couple of key names. Ben's mentioned them already, but maybe you have some specific questions around them. Yeah, and, and this is why I like talking and, and, and interacting with Ben, because when you think about it from the outside looking in as fans, we're like, oh, all these names are coming in and things are going to be great. And we're we're transitioning as a club and as a as a model. But you're right, Ben, it's, it, it will take time. There will be good recruitments. There'll be recruitments that don't work out and things will have to evolve over time. And you brought up uh, Bruce and Marina, and I think a lot of fans were looking at that and saying, well, and, and the media to a certain extent saying, well, they're throwing everyone that knows the business, that knows how things are done out the door, and how is the club going to ever uh, you know, operate in, in the right way? Well, to change the culture, you have to change the personnel because mm. um, it, even in a business, and we all we all work for corporations, the culture is the most important thing. If you don't have the right culture, you don't have the right way of dealing with things. You're, you're going to get stuck in certain instances. And in this case, um, it's going to take time, like you said, but we're here for it. And, and I'm sure we'll we'll learn more from you as we go along. Uh, you mentioned Lawrence Stewart, and I wanted to ask you about that. But from listening to you, and even in the last 15, 20 minutes, 
I've educated myself the fact that Lawrence Stewart is in to focus more globally. And Vivel, if he comes in, if and when he comes in, will be a little more Chelsea focused, like you were describing. Is that something I, I've understood right? Or is that um, not how things are going to be? And, and Lawrence Stewart may end up doing the, the two things initially and someone else may come in over time. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. The titles are not really that important at this point because the model hasn't been established. The irony is from people I speak to that Vivel is better placed to be a technical director from his historical CV anyway that focuses on group and youth. And actually, Lawrence Stewart, having been at a club like Monaco with experience as well, at the Red Bull group may have a bit more experience to transition and window plan ahead for Chelsea. And at the moment, I think it will, to some extent, have to juggle both. And that's what you want because your global group strategy and your Chelsea strategy quite clearly need overlap. So I think that until the full model is built, it's going to be very difficult to answer that question without ultimately misleading because I don't even think that Chelsea know and that's possibly why the talks with Vivelle have taken a while and also they're looking at so many different candidates in so many different areas that the structure is going to be far more important in my view anyway from the outside in than any individual titles but I think it's fair to say with Lawrence Stewart Chelsea stressed on record that his focus as technical director is with a global focus so that does tell you that as the multi-club model builds, then Lawrence Stewart will, as technical director, be looking at the group aspect. And therefore, there is going to be room for somebody else, whether they are called technical director or given another title, to be a bit more Chelsea orientated. And generally, every technical director is looking multiple windows ahead. They're making sure that there is a scouting network in place and obviously that's both internal and external if you have a multi-club model in the sense that you would manage a team of scouts to look at your targets. But once you've built a group, if we compare it to Manchester City, the technical director will also be across what's going on within the group as well. And that's normal. One, because there might be players that come into a sister club that you've not seen or might be alerted to you as making the right steps. And two, because there'll be players that you've sent out to those clubs that you already know about that you want to keep track on as well. And I think that Lawrence Stewart, who was a Paul Mitchell hire, will be perfect for Chelsea. He comes with a really strong reputation. He's an amicable guy. He's hungry. He's ambitious. He will relish, I think, working under this American-led ownership group. And he's in a different position, really, because obviously at Monaco, even though that's not the only gig on his CV, it was partially, much like at the Red Bull group, about finding the talent and bringing them through. But it was also about knowing when to cash in. And that's exactly what Monaco have always done historically. And during his time, they obviously sold two many to Real Madrid. But when you implement the same facilities and you potentially have a player like a many, who Chelsea would love, 
right now, by the way, but unfortunately he went to Real Madrid, you don't have to sell them. And that's quite interesting because a technical director that works within a group where the end goal might be to eventually sell them, and it would be the same even at a bigger club like Dortmund as it would be for a smaller club like Salzburg, they all know eventually that there's a price. Whereas Chelsea probably won't accept because of their rich heritage that there is a price. Now, naturally, if you take your best player, let's just say for the sake of it, Reese James and Real Madrid come in in January and say, here's a billion, then it probably is true that that would be such an insane offer that even Chelsea would say, great, we've developed him, we've brought him through, we've allowed him to sign a new contract, but we're going to let him go anyway. But that is a very rare exception, and there's not many clubs out there, especially not with financial fair play and off the back of a pandemic, that would ever have that ability, not at elite level. So that is key for Lawrence Stewart to grasp and understand. It's not a hard thing intellectually, but in your day-to-day, if you're used to developing, scouting, planning, and then they come into your club, and then you know that the day that they succeed, you've done your job. But guess what? The day that they succeed, the whole world sees them succeed, and there's a very real danger that they'll be sold. And then other departments in your club start going, right, are we going to sell them? At what price are we going to sell them? Or do we need to renegotiate to keep them? And as a technical director, it's out of your control. So the day that you succeed with many, and there were a few people at Monaco behind that, other than only Stuart, because of the time in which he came to the football club. But the day that you bring a player like that in, the technical director's thinking two, four, six, eight windows ahead as to how you can replace them. Whereas at Chelsea, the technical director is still looking at that, but with bigger gaps because they know that the strategy is about bringing in that player in, let's say, two windows time. If you're the technical director, this is because you're not always working on the imminent. And then knowing that they'll be loyal to Chelsea, ideally for seven to 10 years. So your replacement goes over such a wider cycle that you almost skip a generation, which would not happen at Monaco and won't often happen at the Red Bull group. And that I think is what's really interesting. And I got to be honest, I have to ask questions and I have to do my own digging on this because does that mean that a technical director will plan for a revamp in let's say the midfield because that's the kind of oldest and the area where Chelsea need to urgently bring in fresh blood. And then once it's done, if they get it right, then is your technical director actually then dropping into someone like Joe Shields and academy networks of scouts because they realize that they're probably not going to need to replace who they've brought in for a longer period. So they actually need to then be looking at a younger demographic than they would normally. Of course, Chelsea are looking at all demographics just to make that clear, but I'm talking specifically about a role like Lawrence Stewart. He wouldn't necessarily as the group or global technical director have to focus that young at a club like Monaco, but he might focus a lot younger at a club like Chelsea because the gaps 
when he looks for replacements. And you'd be surprised at how soon people are replaced. I can guarantee you Man City bringing in Haaland, there'll be a team at Man City that immediately draw up a list of Haaland replacements at every football club. You have to, because the legwork, as you'll see with Endrick as well, the legwork you have to put in can be up to three or five years and you wait for the right moment in the market and then you pounce. So Lawrence Stewart kind of has to almost define his own role and work out the remit and the game plan, especially in the short term, because not everyone's come in. And Lawrence Stewart himself, much like Joe Shields and others that have been appointed, might have their own recruitments as well. They might be able to bring in people they've worked with before and build mini teams. But it's quite difficult because obviously if he is the global, let's just call it multi-club for the sake of clarity, technical director, he doesn't have a multi-club model. So quite clearly, once he starts after he's done at Monaco, the first thing he'll have to do is think Chelsea because they don't know what the other clubs are. They don't know what the model is. They've not made all their recruitments. They don't have a sporting director or whatever title it ends up being. So again, as with everyone at Chelsea at the moment, there's almost that short term, fix the midfield, find good youth, make sure that the data is connected, get value for money, network, and then they'll buy a club, no doubt, or they'll make a partnership with a club and then we'll start to see the model develop. And that's where perhaps Lawrence Stewart will go in one direction and Vivell will go in the other direction, assuming that he joins. So uh, once again, that's probably not that helpful for fans in the sense that there are no answers yet. But you can't really expect the media to have the answers if at this point, uh, Todd Bowley and the ownership group don't have the answers. What they have is a plan but the plan still requires recruitment, structure, trial and error. And it probably won't be finessed, in my opinion anyway, for two or three windows, potentially, let alone two or three weeks or months, which fans think is going to give the clarity as to what direction they're heading in. So this is interesting because patience will be required. But what we're seeing in the short term is Chelsea in the recruitment market, on the field and off the field, on the pitch and behind the scenes being highly ambitious, which is very refreshing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's easy to forget that it's only been five months since the new ownership group has come in. So uh, mm, a lot has sure. changed. A lot has changed on the pitch, off the pitch. A lot will continue to change, like you mentioned. Uh, and a lot of things still have to be figured out. But uh, let's jump into this weekend's fixtures uh, and talk about Graham Potter returning back to Brighton. Uh, came pretty early back into his uh, his tenure, his uh, career here at Chelsea. I'll read out a quick few facts and then we can jump into the sure. uh, the details. So Brighton have actually never beaten Chelsea in the Premier League in the last 10 meetings. There's been four draws uh, and Brighton have lost six times. So that's good. Uh, to add to that, Brighton's new manager, uh, Deserby, who's come in to take over from Potter, actually hasn't won a game yet. And Potter, since coming to Chelsea, hasn't lost a game yet. Uh, so this in Chelsea world is all, all almost set up as as a game where we go in and lose. But hey, you never know with the way things are. We we get, we're on the up, uh, and Brighton seem to be a little bit um, trying so finding their way under the new manager. Uh, so I know Jackie, you've got to jump off in the next couple of minutes. So I want to get a quick prediction from you in terms of score, uh, and then we can jump into uh, getting some input from Ben. Yeah, it's going to be a tough game. I think it's just because of the nature of what's going on. But Chelsea have been in good form and have been looking good. So I'm going to go for a 2-0 here. 2-0, very nice. 
Uh, ben, what have you heard in terms of Deserby coming in? Uh, how is he handling, uh, you know, the Brighton side of things and taking over from Potter? And the bigger piece I, I want to know is what kind of reception is Potter going to get here in Brighton? Is are they are they upset? Are they annoyed? Are they frustrated that he left them in a position where they were looking like challenging at least for a European spot? Yeah, I think Potter will get quite a warm reception if I'm perfectly honest, because the Brighton fans appreciate what he did at that football club and he still lives down there and is an active member of the community. And it would be a great shame if the Brighton fan base didn't show Graham Potter the respect that he deserves, especially when you consider that when Potter left Brighton, he wrote an open letter to the fan base. He was very yeah. humble. He explained his decision for leaving for Chelsea. And I think that Brighton fans at large, regardless of what we might see on social media or in the context of the match itself, where naturally both players and fans will want to get one over him. But I think when he walks out there, I'll be surprised and disappointed if Graham Potter is booed or shown any disrespect because he simply doesn't deserve that. And then with the match itself, I think... It's going to be a test similar to Brentford, really, because Brentford Brighton on their day and at home can be very confident and expansive. And I don't expect them to sit back. And I also think that they will look to capitalize on the fact that Fafana, Koulibaly, James, Kante are all missing. And therefore, Chelsea are still showing at one end they're a little bit light defensively in terms of numbers and then at the other end they're missing a ton of chances so it's going to go one of two ways therefore they're either going to finally <laughs> take this string of chances even when they've picked up maximum points that they've been missing Salzburg was a great example of that or this pattern of not being clinical is going to continue and Brighton are exactly the type of club that can take advantage of that. But the reason why I think that Chelsea will win the game is because De Zerbi is still learning about the Premier League and he actually has had flashes, in my opinion, of quite positive phases of play and even results as well, despite the fact that he hasn't won. I mean, let's not forget, it's not exactly been the easiest job to walk into Brighton came off the back of a couple of postponed games. He gets his first match. It's at Anfield. They were very unlucky not to win that game. It finished 3-3. Then you've got to play Spurs. And at the point that Brighton were at home to Spurs, they were still in decent form. I know they've kind of had a wobble since. And then Brentford and Forest after that were a little bit disappointing. But take nothing away from Brentford. They're a very good side at home. Chelsea found that with the 0-0 draw. So the only real disappointment for me because it was Forest after that and then they lost 3-1 away at Manchester City the only real disappointment was probably the 0-0 draw against Nottingham Forest where Brighton were dreadful and they barely created anything but to come into a new club as Deserby and have Liverpool and then Tottenham and Manchester City and now Chelsea that is a horrible start for a new manager so Deserby I was very impressed by in terms of how he's taken to the job tactically. And I think that his style is actually not that 
dissimilar from Graham Potter either. He'd obviously come from Shakhtar, but that was his last job and he left due to the war in Ukraine and he was very highly rated there as well. So I think that broadly it's going to take time for him to settle, but with this game, it's going to have that added bite and intensity. And the reason why I think Chelsea will win the game, 2-1 is my prediction, by the way, is just because Deserby doesn't really know the Premier League yet. And Potter not only is flying results-wise, even if Chelsea have been in second gear at times, but they've still managed to grind out results. But Potter knows Brighton so well that he can use that in a game like this. And I think that will ultimately be the difference between the sides, that having that intel, knowing the players, knowing the tactics, knowing the mentality, I just think that it's going to be key. Whereas you can't really argue it the other way around because, yes, Brighton players know Potter, but they know Potter at Brighton, not Potter at Chelsea. And there is a difference because he's dealing with a higher calibre of players, more depth of squad, five substitutions even this season, which if you go back to last season, the way that he would play at Brighton, the tactics he could use were different. So I don't think Brighton players gain anything knowing Potter, but I think that Potter gains a lot knowing Brighton. So I expect Chelsea to go there and win the game. And I think that it's absolutely vital that they do that as far as the race for the top four is concerned because Newcastle are an extra player into the fold. It's very tight generally with Manchester United and Liverpool are still always going to come back and have a resurgence as well. So therefore, when you look at top four, even though we're still pretty early in the season, if they don't get maximum points at Brighton, suddenly then you've got a run of three games if we're discounting Dinamo Zagreb and okay, one is in the EFL Cup, but then you head into that international break as Chelsea with Arsenal at home, Man City away in the EFL Cup and then away at Newcastle. So this is really important for momentum. Otherwise, there suddenly becomes pressure and fans will start saying, well, yikes, if we lost to Brighton and then we've got home to Arsenal and away at Newcastle before the break, as far as the Premier League is concerned, there's a real danger that this is the lull and then you're going to be sitting on that and thinking about that and worried about that. And obviously, if you lose to those teams, they put that little bit of separation between you. So in all likelihood, therefore, Chelsea would almost certainly be three or four or five points behind the fourth place team. And then at that point, you stew on it until January. And of course, that Arsenal game, that Newcastle game, there's still going to be a negativity if Chelsea lose both games and that's because Chelsea's an ambitious club if Chelsea lose back-to-back games there's always going to be panic and frustration but if they lose to Brighton first and then have to head into those two Premier League games the pressure cooker is just cranked up whereas if you win away at Brighton then no doubt beats Zagreb and even if not they've won the group already then I just think that it deflects helpfully before that run, if we include the AFL Cup of three really difficult fixtures before the break takes place. Yeah, and, and from from my perspective as a fan, I think uh, the Brentford game, yes, it was a draw. The United game, really, we should have seen it through at, at the end. Of course, you take nothing away from United pushing. Mm-hmm. Casemiro, who was a striker uh, in his initial days, putting in a, a good header. But we should see that out because, like you said, it's all about momentum. It's all about the pressure uh, and if we win that United game going into these next three games, which are tough games, when, as you said, Brighton away is never easy. I think we've drawn the last two or three games mm. with them. Of course, Grant Potter was on the other side. Uh, 
And then Arsenal, we don't have a good record against in the last few seasons at home. And Newcastle are flying at this point and don't have uh, – and I'd love to hear your thoughts on Newcastle. Maybe, I don't know if we have the time today, but they just seem very hungry for success and uh, driven by, of course, the 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 new ownership group. They're, they're just pushing and pushing. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a game that we should win. Then you go into the Zagreb game and you can rotate a little bit, rest some key players before you hit it against uh, Arsenal, Man City, and Newcastle. And then I was looking, Ben, here, when we come back, it doesn't, it picks up very fast. We have Bournemouth, we have North Nottingham Forest, and then we have Man City first of the for uh, in the first part of the new year. So, uh, like you said, we have about six weeks where we'll be thinking about the results if they don't go right, and then we come back and we have some tough games too. But uh, I I want to get your thoughts on Leicester City, and I know we we touch on them uh, once in a while because they are your team. And uh, the last time we spoke, I think we had just spoken on the back of the Nottingham Forest win. We were saying, well, we're playing you're playing Bournemouth. Uh, this is an opportunity to kind of build some momentum. Unfortunately, that didn't go the the, the right way. But a draw against Palace and then two back-to-back wins, one, one against Leeds and the other one against Wolves. Now you have Man City coming over the weekend. It's an early kickoff here uh, on, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on, on how things are progressing along and have you built up enough momentum even against a mighty Man City to get something out of this game? <laughs> I think Leicester will struggle against Manchester City. They won't pick up anything from that game, in my opinion, but they've turned things around. And it looked like they'd done that after the 6-2 defeat away at Tottenham when they played Nottingham Forest. They won 4-0 against a very poor Forest side, but then they followed it up with a dreadful 2-1 defeat away at Bournemouth. And Brendan Rodgers was under pressure. And even the 0-0 draw against Crystal Palace was a dire spectacle with the clean sheet being just about the only saving grace from Leicester's point of view, other than the fact that they walk away with one point rather than zero. So there was definitely no improvement in confidence or consistency after that Forest win right up until Palace. And that made Leeds must win. But I think to Leicester's credit, Brendan Rodgers has had two back-to-back games and now three consecutive clean sheets and four clean sheets in his last five games. And with Leicester's creativity, not just James Madison, but Harvey Barnes, and then obviously a variety of other players, including Jamie Vardy that can put in goals. Dewsbury Hall too is an excellent player that's capable of chipping into. Leicester, because the way they play, they're very direct. They're strong on the counter-attack. There's pace in the team. They're decent from set pieces, particularly free kicks, not so much corners. So you fancy them to get a goal, which means that if, especially against the teams around them in the bottom half of the table, they can keep these shutouts. And as I say, they've done that against Forest. They've done that against Palace. They've done that against Leeds. They've done that against Wolves. You always fancy them to score. And not only do you fancy them to score, but in a lot of games they've managed to score the first goal. And that's been the frustration for fans that they've thrown away winning positions. I mean, even in that 6-2 against Tottenham and the 5-2 against Brighton, they were leading in that game. The first game that they played of the uh, season, they were 2-0 up in and it ended up finishing 2-2 against Brentford. So Leicester are consistent this season in the majority of games, in fact, where they score and they often score first. So now they're keeping clean sheets. If they're scoring and scoring first, then 
they're going to be winning games. And what's been reassuring about Leeds and with the victory away at Wolves as well is just they've somehow been able to kill off the game. So it's not perfect because like with Wolves, they had four shots on target. They scored four goals. Wolves, I think, had 21 attempts on goal and failed to score. Um, So you can still see that they're not creating as much as they would like. But against Leeds and against Wolves, they've just been a little bit more clinical. And that was the case with Forrest as well. So uh, honestly, for now, I'm not that bothered about Leicester consistency as a fan anyway. As a journalist, it should be flagged, though. I'm more concerned about Leicester beating the teams around them and gathering points against anyone at the King Power Stadium, which means that Leeds must win. Job done. Wolves away. Wasn't sure that we'd win, but again, job done. Now Man City, it's a free swing. And if they lose, they lose, but it's going to be very difficult not to. And then obviously you look at Leicester's fixtures between now and the break. And again, if we discount the EFL Cup where they've got Newport County, after this, they've got two away games. So that's the only unfortunate thing for me that they'll probably lose to Manchester City at home and comfortably as well. I think 3-0 or 3-1. But then after that, they go away at Everton, away at West Ham. So it's not the easiest of runs because Everton have had a bit of a resurgence under Frank Lampard and West Ham have picked up a bit as well after a slow start to the season. So we're going to have to wait and see how Leicester do. Um, But it's encouraging. And I still think they've got too much firepower um, to be sucked into a relegation battle. And... um, you know, the table's so tight as well. That's what people forget, that if Leicester win their next game, they can move to 14 points, and 14 points takes you 10th in the table. If they win another game, then they, they could be close to a Fulham or a Liverpool, and then you're in a Europa League uh, conference spot. So the panic can be oversold in many ways, um, but... Uh, it is a difficult run between now and when the break happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you were saying, Leicester have enough firepower. I'm looking through the goals scored, uh, and I know you were talking about the creativity. They've scored more than half the teams in the top 10. So uh, the goals are there. Clean sheets are coming. If they come in a little more consistently, like you were saying, especially around the teams in and around you guys, mm. uh, I could certainly see you see you climbing up. Uh, there's one more game, Ben, and while we were talking about the Leicester game, I guess I, I forgot to give my prediction for the Chelsea game. So uh, Jackie went with <laughs> yeah, the 2-0, you went with the 2-1. Uh, in the interest of keeping things different, I'll go with us scoring three times and Brighton scoring once. So 3-1 uh, and a nice win for us uh, away, and, and we can come back home uh, for against Zagreb and then Arsenal. Uh, but let's talk about Liverpool-Leeds, which is the final game I, I want to touch mm. on, mainly more on the Leeds side. Uh, for uh, Jesse Marsh, who's obviously we follow him here in the U.S., uh, he has come in under a little bit of a pressure. Lost the last four games, have not hasn't won in the last five actually. Um, Liverpool themselves having a little bit of a shaky time. Can Leeds find something here? And overall, can Jesse Marsh maybe get this team back on track with the way they started the season, the win over us actually three 0 early earlier in the season? And what are maybe the fans thinking and saying and what are you hearing maybe in, in locally down there uh, in the UK about Jesse Marsh and Leeds? Yeah, I think Jesse Marsh is in trouble. Uh, Leeds are making so many sloppy errors 
and they need a result somewhere between now and the break. And the game, I think, that's going to define Marsh's future is probably Leeds-Bournemouth on Saturday, the 5th of November. And that's must win. And obviously, if he makes that game, it will be because they've put in a positive performance away at Liverpool. But I sense that this is going to be another one of those Liverpool backlashes where off a good result in Europe, they now follow it up and the likes of Mo Salah and Bobby Firmino get going. And I think if that happens, the floodgates could open against a very leaky Leeds defence. So I can see Liverpool putting four or five pass Leeds uh, without reply. And then obviously the Leeds board have got a big decision to make. I still sense he'll be given that Bournemouth game as well, but it really is must win because after that, their last game before the break happens is away at Spurs. And then their first two games over the, I suppose we still call it festive period, but it's (laughs) December the 28th and 31st. So New Year's period, let's say, (laughs) is Manchester City and then Newcastle. So they couldn't have a worse three games to have either side of the break. And uh, then suddenly you head into the new year and Leeds could find themselves a little bit adrift in the bottom three. And the board know that. And of course, naturally, the mid-season World Cup is going to make boards a bit more trigger-happy earlier. And that could go against Jesse Marsh as well. Because why give that traditional time in late November, early December without a mid-season World Cup and then make a change in the new year or certainly in late December once you kind of hit that 19-game mark when now you've got the break. And during that break, there's time to look and recruit. There's time to restructure. There's time to work with your non-World Cup players and maybe take them away for some warm weather training. And then, of course, there's time for whoever comes in to prepare for the January window, all without the distraction of football. And I think what that's going to mean is for a manager like Jesse Marsh, if Leeds are thinking about getting rid of him, and quite clearly they are because they have to plan for the eventuality, they'll wield the axe earlier than they would have done if we didn't have a mid-season World Cup. And that, for me, is why I think Jesse Marsh is in big, big trouble. So I'm not sure that he would go after a loss at Anfield to... Liverpool. But again, I reiterate the next two games and particularly that home game against Bournemouth are massive for Marsh's future. And if he loses heavily at Liverpool and then doesn't get a result against Bournemouth at that point with a EFL Cup, which gives a little bit of time midweek and then only one more game before the break happens, I think that Leeds will be planning to either get rid of him instantly on that November the 5th, or maybe more logically do what a lot of clubs have done and seemingly Aston Villa did with Steven Gerrard and kind of accept he's gone, but let him see out until November the 12th and then get rid of him. Because that is just sometimes what you need to do to have the time to find the right replacement. So we'll have to wait and see, but I think that Marsh is in big, big trouble. I think that Leeds are looking incapable of scoring enough goals to win games, which was not kind of the case under Bielsa. And like, granted, they had Rafinha 
And then they had Calvin Phillips to kind of lock up the central midfield. And they had Jack Harrison on good form as well, who's not as integral anymore. So there is going to be a change. And I do really like Tyler Adams and um, Aronson. And I also really think that a player like Sinistera is a good long-term signing for Leeds. He's got lots of energy and could kind of fill those, roughly speaking, Rafinha-like boots. But Bamford didn't look fit in the last game. There's a lot of pressure at the moment on Rodrigo. They're not scoring. They're giving the ball away cheaply and they're conceding for fun. The 5-2 loss against Brentford was a horror show. And ironically, um, and it was their last win outside of the AFL Cup, um, their best performance was the 3-0 against Chelsea. But everything has fallen apart after that. And uh, Marsh's days, as I say, uh, will uh, be numbered if he can't turn things around. And just one more thing in his defence. They were actually quite good against Arsenal. And I think that is what made Leicester so disappointing that, you know, they could have easily taken something from the game. Um, they, They missed a penalty, didn't they, in that game? Uh, there was there was that crazy power cut that delayed it. But I really yeah. think that they showed what they could do. And if they had carried that momentum to Leicester, then they could have got something from the game. But it's just the two extremes, like Chelsea, brilliant, uh, and Arsenal, lots to like. And then Leicester, absolutely dreadful. And then obviously with Fulham, they take the lead in the game. And then they find themselves 3-1 down before they get a late consolation. And it just must be so frustrating at the moment being a Leeds United fan. So I think that uh, Marsh is in uh, a fair amount of trouble right now. And um, unfortunately for Leeds United, I think that Liverpool, as I say, will score four or five against them at the weekend. And I hope so, because Mo Salah's my fantasy football <laughs> captain. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's tough to hear that as, from, as a US men's uh, fan, national team fan. Uh, to see mm. Jesse Mars, uh, you know, struggling in in the Premier League, but it's a results based business. And while we were, you were talking, I was trying to calculate how many managers have already lost their job uh, in this season. I think it's up to five. So, uh, if you know it, Ben, I, I'd love to hear that. But if anyone out there knows what this the record is for a single season in the Premier League, how many managers have have lost a job? I tried to look it up, but didn't get a quick answer. Um, this might be a season where we we may end up. And the double digits of things, things are, especially with the World Cup, like you were saying, things don't don't go the right way, or teams are looking for a change. But uh, thanks for joining us today, Ben. It's been it's been very insightful as always. Mm. Uh, we've been trying to mix it up with talking about Chelsea, but also talking about some of the other teams in in the league, uh, including Leicester, and hopefully they mm. can get a result uh, so that we can close the gap on them uh, on Man City. I beg your pardon a little bit, uh, but it should be another fun weekend of, of Premier League fixtures. Uh, and we will be back, uh, guys, with Ben in the very near future. I know he's getting ready to head out to uh, cover the World Cup, but uh, hopefully before then, once more, we'll we'll get you on, Ben, and maybe we'll get a prediction about the World Cup uh, at that point, too. But thanks for joining us again. That wraps it up, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, continue to subscribe, like, and follow us at the Premier Chels on all podcast providers. 
uh, and YouTube and on Instagram uh, and on Twitter. It's at Premier Chels. Uh, we couldn't get the Premier Chels on Twitter, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but maybe with a new ownership change at Twitter, that might happen too. Uh, but anyway, guys, we will be back. We have a women's episode coming over the weekend uh, with the fan that's been following them for a number of seasons and will be at the Villa game this weekend. So definitely keep an eye out for that one. Uh, but until then, stay safe and up the Chels. Hey guys, the Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.